So in the Reading Corner today, I'm joined by Chris Thorogood, who's a botanist and a botanical artist. He's the Deputy Director and Head of Science at the University of Oxford Botanic Garden and Arboretum in the UK, and a lecturer in plant biology at the University of Oxford's Department of Plant Scientists. Chris's research focuses on the evolution of parasitic and carnivorous plants, I bet that's exciting. And uh, also the biomimetic applications of plants. He's written books for adults and for children, including Perfectly Peculiar Plants and a new book, which we're going to be talking about today, When Plants Took Over the Planet. Makes them sound a bit aggressive. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Chris. Hello, Nikki. It's such a pleasure to be joining you today. Well, many of the listeners of this podcast work in education, and so they have an interest in how children learn. And I read on one of your biographies that as a child, you always had plants growing on your windowsill. (laughs) I wonder if you can recall how that interest started. You you mentioned my bedroom windowsill. um, And honestly, it was it was absolutely jammed with plants, Nikki. It was festoons to the point where you could barely open the curtains. I had um, fish tanks that I filled with moths and tropical plants and I'd recreate miniature cloud forests and rainforests in my bedroom windowsill. Meanwhile, I had a a squirting cucumber plant. I don't know if you know about these. I don't. You're going to have to enlighten me. (laughs) So it's a a Mediterranean species that you get um, growing around waste places like car parks and near sand dunes and things. And it's a relative of the culinary cucumber and it produces these bristly fruits. You can't eat them. But when you touch them, when they're ripe, they explode violently um, and catapult their seeds for several metres away, which is a mechanism of dispersal. And it gets their seeds away from the parent plant. Um, But they're good fun to to grow. They probably come with a health warning. You don't want to get them in your eye. But um, yeah, so I had um, squirting cucumbers launching missiles of seeds across the bedroom when when I was a kid. So so I was that kind of kid. (laughs) But to, coming back to your, to your question in terms of first plants, I'm glad you asked me that because actually some of the plants that really excited me were some of the plants that we know excite kids um, as much as they ever did. So things like carnivorous plants, plants that eat insects, they grab people's attention and kids particularly because they challenge that notion of what a plant and I think sometimes we can get carried away in, in, in teaching sort of photosynthesis and some of the chemical processes, which we need to learn. But I think also there's a, there's a, a place for, for learning about these exciting plants and the drama in the plant kingdom. So those are the things that, that really got me going when I was a kid. I think also the idea of having plants when you're a child is that if you're not allowed to have a pet, there's something about a lesson in having responsibility for some things flourishing as well. There, there is and there's also a certain magic um that whether you're a child or an, an adult you you feel when you conjure something out of the earth you're conjuring life out of the earth you plant a seed and that thrill you get when you watch a seed germinating and i still get it now just as much as i ever did and i and i think we all have that and however interested we are in plants and living things to watch a seed grow is something really really special can you tell us something about that journey from a boy with an interest and a passion yeah. to the academic that you are now? So I loved science. So that was that was what really excited me at school um, because I'd look at something and I think, well, how 
how does that work? I mean, that's what science is all about. Of course, it's it's a it's about asking questions and then seeking to to understand how to address them. And um, so, I think uh, um, I was quite inquisitive. Um, I liked science, and then that's what I went on to to study. And 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 really, it's that I guess without going into any of the details, it's that same curiosity now as much as it ever was. Um, just working in a different way, I suppose. And and now. I work much more with other scientists to answer questions together. We can look at a plant, for example, and say, well, let's work out how this works or let's try to piece together the steps to understand how this plant evolved. Mm. So that's sort of how the journey was. Mm. Now, I know that you paint as well. And there's a tradition, really, of botanists who are botanical (laughs) artists. Yeah. Um, I'm clutching, as I talk to you, a copy of my 1960s concise British flora, the Keeble Martin. And he must have learnt such a lot about plants from drawing them and painting them. Yeah. What about your own? Because your style is very different. Do you paint in oils? So I so um I paint in, in oils and in in watercolours. Um I like painting in oils because for me they conjure up the environments in which a plant grows. If I'm trying to paint a habitat and recreate that environment, I find oils gives that um, depth to, to a painting. If I'm trying to paint something very meticulously, then I might paint in watercolours. Um, I'm actually doing some watercolours at the moment and and I've got uh, my copy of Keeble Martin close to hand as well. I know it well. And there are some of his pages in, in the book that you're clutching there, Nikki, on the um, ranunculus um, and some of the, the aquatic species that that the level of detail um in and precision in in those paintings is just extraordinary and i believe that he painted every single specimen from life because at the time um, when he was painting these it's not like he could have looked these up of course on the internet and there probably weren't even the the books that um and the plants featured in the books that, that we have now and so people were sending him specimens from all over the uk to paint them and, and he painted every single specimen from from life and and i do try to paint from life when i can which isn't always possible but it does really help you bring something to life and get that accuracy do you think it sort of feeds an appreciation of the structure of things oh, when you yes. have to paint them yeah, Nikki, it does. And we so I, I teach undergrads here um, in, in biology here at the university and some of them don't like drawing, um, which is which is understandable. But it's not really about being artistic. It's about capturing, just as you say, the structure and the form. And it's only when you when you look closely and then you capture it on the page that, that you're really starting to understand what it is you're, you're looking at. And and I think it's a really important process. Before we leave this completely, just for the delight of my listeners, I'm just going to uh, read a quote from you about painting. (laughs) Um, And you said, during the process of painting plants, I can be transported back to the remote and precipitous hillside somewhere with the sound of a waterfall in the distance or the trill of tropical birdsong. In an uncertain and frenetic world, both plants and painting are healing. I just thought they were beautiful words. Thank you. I don't remember when I said them. They they certainly ring true. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we're here to talk about your book in particular today, and I do want to do that. Um, The book is called When Plants Took Over the World. It's essentially an evolutionary study of plants with a chronological structure. Tell us a little bit about some of the decisions that you made when you were 
putting the book together? It wasn't all that easy because you're trying to condense hundreds of millions of years of, of evolution and in a way that can be um, easily followed and understood and is exciting and engaging, particularly for kids, in, in quite a, a, a short, a small number of pages. And how I sought to go about it was to look at, well, what, what plants do we have today? So, so we've got obviously our flowering plants, we've got our gymnosperms, including things like conifers, we've got our mosses and liverworts and all this sort, sort of thing. Um, and then I put them, I, I remember doing this, I sketched my own timeline and, and charted where they were going to land on that, on, that, on that timeline and then had to make some decisions about where to dedicate the most space for the, for the, for the different parts. And, you know, the, the book sort of evolved in its own way, actually, because it wasn't necessarily as linear a process as it might come across because I had to go back and fill bits out and, um, and take bits out and that sort of thing. So it was a little bit complicated, but what we really wanted to do was to, to take people on that journey of plant evolution. So from those sort of slimy looking algae through to those colossal conifers and then the, the beauty and it bewildering diversity of, of flowering plants that we see today. And we wanted to, for people to get a feel for the places, um, those sort of prehistoric ferny forests that dinosaurs prowled um, once upon a time. We really wanted to bring that to life. And so that when a, um, a kid has read this book and gone from start to finish, whether they've sort of really absorbed it or dipped in and out, they'll get some, hopefully some sort of appreciation for the diversity of plants on our planet that we share today um, and how they've come to be as diverse as they are. Mm. You talk about the timeline, which is very helpful, as was the, the tree, the family tree, so that you could yeah. see how things were connected. Now, I don't know if this is true, but many prehistoric creatures, obviously, including dinosaurs, are extinct mm. now, even if we can mm. see their sort of ancestry in some creatures in the deep mm. or the skies. Mm. But with plants, it seemed to me that we're more clearly able to see the descendants from each of those eras. Do, is that true? I mean, so many of them still seem to be around. It's partly true and and i suppose our our view of that is very much influenced by by what was preserved in the fossil records of which some things preserve very well and others will not have um and and so we're always trying to to make sense of the world and and um as scientists to understand more and build on our understanding but it'll only be only ever be as good as as what we're able to see with with what's in front of us and, and so one example um, that I'd like to highlight, actually, is that mystery of, of flowering plants, the evolution of flowering plants that suddenly appear in a huge diversity in the fossil records. Um, and that that had Darwin, Charles Darwin, scratching his head. Um, and, and to an extent, it still does with scientists today. To um, ha How did those flowering plants evolve that are quite different from their ancestors um, in quite a short space of time and in such a bewildering diversity. And that's that's a really fascinating question. So I think in some areas we we do have a living legacy of some of those ancient plants, mosses, for example, and, and liverworts, and to an extent gymnosperms. Um, but in, in other cases, there, there, there really are mysteries still waiting to be solved. Mm -hmm. And the science, you've talked about fossil records and presumably things like carbon dating yeah. as well mm -hmm. what are they the main scientific tools that help us build the record 
They are. And, and also um, latterly looking at DNA as, as well. So, so if we take the, the flowering plants, which make up the, the bulk of the diversity of plants that exist today on, on, on our planet, um, and if we, if we look at those, since the 1990s, scientists have been able to, um, if you like, it's like barcoding. So looking at the, the, the DNA sequences of all these plants and to sort of sort them out into groups and to understand where they came from. And so there's a little bit in the book dedicated to some paleo plants, I think we called them. So as botanists, we call them basal angiosperms. And these are some of the most primitive flowering plants. And actually, some of them are quite surprising. So magnolias, which we might think of as quite a sort of, it looks quite an advanced thing. You know, it's quite a showy flower. It's not some diminutive little green thing. Um, and yet that's quite primitive, actually. And, and wow. so these answers were encrypted in the, in the plant's DNA. So interesting. While we're talking about um, evolution, apart from artificial breeding, what signs do we see of plants continuing to evolve today? Will they evolve in response to climate change and will they have time to evolve? So when we think of species, um, it's tempting with our human um, sort of view of the world to try and put everything into boxes neatly. Um, and, and that's why species are, are useful for us, because they help us make sense of that bewildering diversity that I keep on talking about that's there. But in fact, species are part of um, a process. So, so species evolve. There's a process called speciation, which is, which is how new species arise. And that is a process. So what you're looking at is always a point in time in that process that happens to just be very, very long. Um, and sometimes there are examples where we've got species that are either quite new, quite, um, quite newly formed, or they're actually in the process of forming species. And that's actually a, a branch of, of my research. So so I look at parasitic plants, which are plants that um, they steal their food from other plants. And in some cases, they have no leaves or chlorophyll. And they look quite similar. But if we look at their DNA, we know that they're actually very different. And that difference has been obscured by their appearance, by their morphology. And so this is an example of, of what we call incipient speciation. What that means is they're forming species right now, but they've just not gone that far down that process. So it's difficult to see. Mm. So, so yes, they do. And yes, they will um, evolve inevitably as, as the climate changes. It's a losing battle, though, um, for 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 the, the biosphere, this, this thin layer of life that we call home on, on our planet um, is facing a lot, as, as, as you don't need me to, to, to spell out. And so plants and all living things, um, they really are under threat. And actually two in five of the world's plant species are threatened with extinction, which is, which is really alarming. And I think that really comes to the heart, actually, of, of why I care deeply about writing books like this. Because the, the people that are going to help tackle this are the, are the next generation, of course. And we need to, to inspire kids and to foster that care and affection and attention for, for the natural world. I wanted to dip in and look at a few bits in more detail. I actually wanted to look at the algae. Oh, right. Um, okay. Because uh, on the page where you look at the algae, you have a microscopic yeah. view. Yeah. And I just love this idea that because I think human beings are very solipsistic and we tend to think of things in relation to our own size, <laughs> whether they're big or small. Okay. I just love the idea that we, you know, we don't know how small these worlds get. They're only to the point that our current technology allows us to observe. And I love that, you know, the algae are actually very beautiful, but you can't see it with the 
naked eye. They they are, and and you're absolutely right. And it opens up a whole different world when you look down a microscope at, at, at something. So another branch of my research is looking at um, carnivorous pitcher plants, which you, you've probably got in your mind's eye, those sort of leafy vessels, and they have a slippery rim at the top. And working with some other scientists here, we were interested to understand how that slippery rim works in more detail. And so we examined that under the microscope. And what we and others before us actually have, have, have shown is that you've got these parallel ridges, but those in turn are made up of further um, ridges and these sort of roof tile like cells. It's very, very interesting and quite beautiful, actually. Um, but it's this wonderful mechanism that actually drives insects into the trap in a in a very controlled way so these insects aren't slipping around in an arbitrary way like we might have thought once they actually driven into the trap but actually these wonderful surface structures also have um, an application in technology so for example something called microfluidics which is in essence that the movement of small amounts of, of fluids for various reasons one might be inkjet printing for example so something we use every day can be inspired by some of these these plant structures and one of actually, um, without digressing too much, one of the really nice examples that I read is there's a there's a, a water lettuce, a pistia plant. Um, it's it feels like velvet and it's covered in tiny hairs, and its surface is super hydrophobic, so it repels water, but it absorbs oils. And um, I've seen a suggestion that we could create a synthetic replica of this material that could soak up oil spills in the ocean, which would prevent you from having to pour chemicals to soak up an oil spill, which I thought was a, a, a lovely idea. Take me to a spread that means something particular. I, I will. The pages I'm really excited by are on pages 40 to 43, those two double page spreads. And the reason I'm really excited by those is that they feature plants that I'm almost certain will not be in another child's book. So we've featured some plants that, that describe how flowers first formed. So way back in the Cretaceous or potentially even earlier when dinosaurs were roaming, because some of these, they only exist in, in diagrams and fossils in books and museums that no one has access to. And what, I, what I'm really excited about is bringing these plants to life for people and sharing them with the world. So, so I'm, I'm super excited about those. Brilliant. Can I have one more? Yes. I'd like to pick up. I'd like to pick up on the ferns. So a fern is a, a plant that reproduces through spores. It it is. Is it's, that its defining? It, it isn't. No, there there are other plants that reproduce through through spores as well. I mean, ferns have have been known to to belong to a certain group for a long time because it makes sense to group them. But but scientifically, we group them by their DNA, as as I mentioned earlier. But ferns have been sort of knocking about for the last four hundred million years. So they they are a particular group that predated um, the flowering plants. But you can define them by various features. One of which is that it reproduces by spores, but it isn't the only plant that does so. But they're very very beautiful um, plants, and they they have a sort of softness. To them, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think also the kind of spiraling that you find it so much in nature, all over, Crazy. there are spirals yeah. and the way that they 
you talk about the unfolding yes. this unfolding yeah the crosius we call them the un, the unfolding leaf crosius yeah, yeah very beautiful yeah. one of the things that i just wanted to pick up there is that you do something in this book that i'm constantly urging people to do in books for young people and that's to provide pronunciations yes the scientific terms can get in the way and it just yeah. once you have a pronunciation guide you have control over that word we we did prov- provide those guides and but i have to say they they also come with, with a slight caveat that the majority of these scientific names um will be based on on latin there's there's also greek as will be involved as you know but but if we were to be very true to the latin um it might make things even more of a mouthful so so what i've done is tried to be as accurate as possible and as true to the latin but without being um ridiculous um because i also think to to an extent I would pronounce those scientific names differently to someone who was a native Spanish speaker, for example, and theirs would be more true to the Latin and more accurate in a sense. So, so, so I think I, I wouldn't want, just as you say, for these names to get in the way of, of anything. So it's there to help codify and to help rather than to, um, to baffle or confuse anyone. Yeah, I get that. If we all understand what we're talking about, because that's what these, these scientific names are for. It's a common currency so that it doesn't matter... If we're talking about a lily that might have many different names in different languages, um, that's confusing. But if we talk about lilium, we know that we're talking about a a particular genus um, and then everyone has a common understanding. So as long as we all understand one another, I think we can we can get particular about the pronunciation. But but it's more about having the same language. That's that's what's important. I want to turn my attention a little bit to education. Maybe you've talked about this already a little bit at the beginning. It's Mm. easy to engage children with animal wildlife. Many school librarians will tell you there are never enough books about animals. They're the most borrowed books in the library. Plants don't have faces. So it's a different set of challenges. Tell us how you would go about engaging or how you do go about engaging young people. It's a growing problem, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to say that there is a, an engagement gap with, with plants. But I think it's fair to say that, that often, not always, um, kids will be drawn to animals because they move on our, on our timeline. And we have a, an anthropocentric view of the world. We are animals. And, um, you know, let's not forget. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it, that's natural and I, and I understand that. And so I think we have to perhaps work harder to break this perception that because plants don't move on our timescale, that they're sort of inanimate and, and, and boring. So we can work to, to challenge that. And I guess coming back to some of the things we talked about earlier, there are plants that we know it's tried and tested and they just excite kids. I was once with it with a group of school children and I was showing them different types of plants and I, and I, I brought out a Venus flytrap. And honestly, the, the gasps and the excitement over this Venus flytrap. And there was a, a kid in the group who said, oh, can I put my finger in? I said, yes, put your finger in the trap. Um, and, um, and he said, oh, ow, it hurt me, which it, of course it didn't. But it got a, a real rise for, for, from the group. And everyone was so excited by, by this. And so there is a, um, a metaphorical term called plant blindness, and if, if that is the problem, then we need to help people see plants in a different way. So we need to break that down and we need to excite um, kids. And, and there are different ways we can do that. But, but I think showing them plants that challenge their perceptions is, is one way. And sharing 
our passion and, and, and knowledge and the beauty of plants is another, and also some of the practical things that can be done. So there are one or two tips at the end of the book, as, as you'll have seen, um, but also just getting kids growing things, I think. So whether it's an avocado stone or, or a, an orange or lemon pip or, ki- you know, kitchen scraps. And it's amazing what you can actually grow from your fridge. <laughs> Most of mine sprouts quite naturally. It's been there a while. <laughs> well, there you go. And, yeah. um, but, but I think that's, re- and that's really exciting um, for kids. And, and also, I think it will help at a time when we've lost, to an extent, our connection with what we're eating. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not preaching. I'm talking about mm. self-included. You know, you go to the supermarket, you buy all these things, and we forget where they've come from. We forget that they're even plants. And I think by actually growing these things together with kids, we, we can help rekindle that passion for growing something and understanding that our very existence on this planet relies on plants. They're the food we eat, the medicines we take and the clothes we wear. Yeah. I love the idea of the seed bank as well, which is something else at the back of your yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, something I used to do, actually, <laughs> was to collect seeds. Many of them are poisonous. I have to say that, so it should be done with care. I think, as, as we say, as we say in the book. But but yes, why not gather your own seeds um, as as a kid and, and store them and um, and then and then grow them. So it's not just about buying them, but but going out there and foraging and looking for things as well. So. Yeah, Chris, it's been such a pleasure talking to you and an education. What you don't know about plants, I think, could probably be written on a fingernail. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner. It's been, been a delight. Thank you, Nikki. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.